Welcome to the Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode 10 of The Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison. I'm a naturopathic physician with over 20 years of experience supporting people with mental health and neurological health concerns live healthy lives. And today, drum roll, today is our first interview with an expert. And I am so honored to have had the opportunity to interview one of my personal heroes, Dr. Lori Mishley. Dr. Lori Mishley is a clinical Parkinson's disease researcher who has dedicated her entire career to understanding the nutritional requirements of folks with neurodegenerative disease. And she's focused on Parkinson's disease, and we get into why in this interview. She is a self-described rebel scientist whose work is patient-centered, meaning that she has developed monitoring tools and endorses treatment options and research as treatment options that are centered on the experience of the people with Parkinson's versus objective measures of scientists and physicians. Basically, what that means is she's interested in what people with Parkinson's need and want and what their individual experiences are like and looking at how do we measure that and how do we meet their needs head on. And that's partly why I love her so much is that Her work is really meeting patients where they are in a research setting. And this is a fascinating conversation that we had. It covers what her research is showing us in terms of the positive deviance, the people that are doing great despite having Parkinson's disease. So what are these folks doing in terms of diet and exercise? We talk about how loneliness and poverty are the strongest predictors of more severe disease states. And then we also talk about all the supports and tools that she has developed that are there for both patients and importantly also for clinicians to do their best work supporting people with Parkinson's. All right, are you ready? Let's dive in. Well, I want to welcome Dr. Lori Mishley to the Well-Nurtured Brain. I am a huge fan of this human being and that's why this is the first person that I asked to be on this podcast. And I'm so excited to have Dr. Lori here. She is a powerhouse in the world of Parkinson's disease research. And she started off as a naturopathic physician who has gone on to get a master's in public health and then a PhD in nutritional sciences. And her focus is to identify the nutritional requirements unique to individuals with neurodegenerative conditions. And Lori is a unique voice in this world, and I'm looking forward to sharing all of her brilliance today. Welcome, Lori. Thank you very much for the invitation to be here, and I hope this is a fabulous launch to a great series. Wonderful. Thank you. So, Lori, one of the things I wanted to start with, because I think people are always interested about how people get into the fields that they get passionate about and you're really passionate about your work and it comes through in everything that you do. 
what got you interested or why did you become so passionate about Parkinson's disease and doing this research? Fabulous lead-in question, and I'll keep it to some bullet points. But when I was 18 or 19, I was in a chemistry class in Alpena Community College, and I was reading an article about Linus Pauling, who was basically on his deathbed, kicking and screaming, saying, you're all idiots. What you're calling psychiatric disorders are, in fact, nutritional deficiencies. I'm paraphrasing a bit. And there was this article Scientific American had written about him, about how this kind of crazy old guy had been right about these three radical ideas that, you know, he ended up winning a Nobel Prize for a couple of them. And throughout history, he's always had a radical approach to things. And they said he was right about these first three, but kind of lost it on this fourth idea that nutritional deficiencies cause mental health disease. And they didn't say why he was wrong. It was just, it was not convention. It was unorthodox, but they weren't scientifically saying why what he was saying was wrong. And he had a track record of being right when everyone else was wrong. And so in a chemistry class, I kind of started realizing like you can be a science-based rebel. And that was my first taste. And then, you know, I discovered Timothy Leary, who was at Harvard being a evidence-based rebel, right? And I was really kind of drawn to the idea of how you can play your cards properly and still disrupt a system. And what age was that when you when you got that well, realization? I was a first year in college, so freshman in college Amazing. when yeah. I discovered Linus Pauling. By my second year of college, I changed my major from pre-med to nutrition science. I started working with you know, synesthesia and schizophrenia. And I was an online crisis counselor and started getting into reality is relative concept. Mm. You all mm-hmm. see very, very different and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then kind of committed to nutritional medicine. Bastier was really the only medical school in the world I could find that had a really, really strong nutrition program. And that was really what I was after was nutritional medicine. And so I wound up at Bastier and doing neurology. So neurology is a big field. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I have a passion for Parkinson's disease. It's something we share. I'm just realizing we also share that we did crisis line work. I did that too. <laughs> the thing that I'm wondering about is what got you to the Parkinson's disease folks can really benefit from what I do and how I think. There were two pivotal things that led me to Parkinson's in particular. The first one was while I was at Bastyr, one of our courses, a statistician came and talked to us about epidemiologically, people are all going to die about 80, right? So if we can just delay the onset of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's by five years, we don't even have to change the slope. We can just delay onset by five years we would cut in half the number of people who have those diseases. A 50% reduction in global burden with a five-year delay. Wow. And so the next day I was putting my, you know, my side job while going through medical school was making copies for authors and researchers in the medical school library because this was before we had internet-based articles. (laughs) So I had to be the rat that went to the medical school library and got people the articles they needed 
And one of the researchers was studying epigallocatechingallate and had me pull a paper that said people in Asia who drink three or more cups of green tea per day delay their onset of Parkinson's by seven years, 7.7 years. There's so much data we're not using. Like at no point have I heard any primary care doc say, hey, yo, you know, you might want to have a little more green tea. So anyway, I started getting this, like, why does this data exist? Why are we funding it? Why are we doing it if we're not going to use it? Like, what is the purpose of doing the green tea study if we're not going to tell people to drink more green tea if it's positive? So I started kind of academically getting interested in the body, the pool of evidence that exists that isn't being used. And then when I was for a K award, I applied for a grant with the NIH to leave practice and go into research. And I said that I wanted to specialize in nutritional deficiencies for neurologic disorders. And they essentially came back and said, you silly little girl, it is hard enough to be good at any one thing. You're not going to be good at like neurologic disorders. And at that time, I had probably seven or 800 patients with multiple sclerosis, probably only about 150 with Parkinson's you know, a handful with developmental disabilities and ALS and Alzheimer's and a couple things really stood out. I mean, even though Alzheimer's is more prevalent, it's harder to work with that population, right? They have less control over their situation. The worst historians, it's harder to teach and educate. We don't have biomarkers that measure memory and cognition that well. And so, I truly think that basically anything that's going to work upstream for Alzheimer's probably works for Parkinson's too and vice versa. I mean, once we cure one, I think we'll cure the other one in short order if we really get to it. And so anyway, Parkinson's patients are amazing. There is no such thing as a person with Parkinson's that's a jerk. They don't exist. Yes. You will never, ever, ever, ever meet a jerk with Parkinson's. And so Between the patients being awesome, the physicians, movement disorder docs have been very welcoming and Mm open-minded. You know, here's a seat at the table. We're stumped. Give us your ideas. So they've been collaborative to work with. So when NIH made me choose a disease, I picked Parkinson's. Yeah, I think it was really fortuitous choice for a lot of reasons. And in part, I think like that patient, they are amazing human beings. They seem to have this really beautiful quality to their personalities. And then the other piece is that they are so motivated. So you have this patient base that it gets really excited about someone like you coming in and doing the research that you do. So it was fortuitous on that side as well, because I imagine it helped you get research subjects. Well, it's interesting that you use the word motivated because one of the biggest problems they deal with is apathy, right? True. But you're absolutely right. This is unique in that they're empowered. They're driven. They're strategic. The patients I work with are above average smart, right? Like it makes sense. And when you've been told there's nothing you can do, this is irreversible and progressive. And then you're exposed to data that says otherwise. It's really fun to have people just the light bulbs go off and the response is generally, oh, just tell me what to do. I'm happy to do it. Nobody told me. Mm-hmm. I could do. And so then they get excited. Yeah. And I mean, you're in the United States and in Canada, I think another problem that we have, and I'm not sure if this is happening in the States, but in Canada, once you get diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, if you're lucky, you get a movement disorder specialist. That's if you're lucky. You often end up with a neurologist who 
works with Parkinson's, but also works with MS and works with dementia and with stroke patients and just has a really generalist approach to care. And so they don't have that ability to kind of drill down the way a movement disorder specialist does. And that you get one hour once a year with that person. Then you've got your 10 minutes every three months, maybe with your GP. And that's it. That's what you've got in terms of care. And so in Canada, you can see how we just don't communicate, at least in the general medical system, in the public medical system, any of this information that gets people excited about there being some ways to delay progression that are lifestyle-based. And that really, like you and I will, I think, agree 100% on this. The great thing is that the information's out there. But the hard thing is that to do the things that we want folks to do, it takes dedication and commitment and daily repeated tasks eating well, exercising, mm-hmm. socializing. These things, like, they take motivation and daily support in some way, shape, or form. And you don't get that with a one-hour visit once a year. The way I have been thinking about healthcare lately is as though the patient is the coach of a team. And they need to build their offensive line and their defensive line. And they need an offensive coach and they need a defensive coach. And that once a year visit with the movement disorder doc is just the goalie. Like if we're doing the job right, we don't actually need them for much. No patient. I have patients who have fabulous access to movement disorder docs. They have never come back from a movement disorder doc visit and said, life altering. I get it. I know exactly what I need to do to slow, stop and reverse this disease. Right? Like that's not what you're going. That's not the goalie's job. You know, the movement disorder doc, the dopaminergic meds play fabulous, fabulous defense, right? They do an amazing job hiding symptoms as they pop up. But that's kind of like a game of whack-a-mole, and that's a whole strategy in and of itself. The patient's job is to hire their offensive line and put together their dietitian, their physical therapist, their health coach, their naturopathic doc, their, you know, that's the missing piece, I think. I think you introduced me to the idea of a Parkinson's coach, and that is brilliant. And I I don't know where you've gone with that, but that is a huge missing piece in Parkinson's care right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when it came out of Kyoto World Parkinson's Congress, it was just a question that patients kept asking over and over again. And I find that listening to patient questions and what they keep repeating is a really valuable piece of what we do as I think naturopathic physicians were quite good at it. I think you're really good at in your research getting to what matters to the patients. And when you talk about delaying progression, that's been a really big feature of your work has been how do we delay progression in these folks so that they die before Parkinson's disease becomes a really big problem for them. And I'm wondering if you could explain in a way that patients would understand a bit of like what your research entails, like how you approached it. I know there's a lot going on, so it's a big question. But, you know, you do have some very fundamental things you've done around how do we assess patients and how do we then look at who's the positive deviance. I love that whole framing that that's something I bring up with patients over and over again that you taught me is looking for these positive deviants. So if you could talk about how your research gets us there. I think people would be really interested in hearing that. So succinctly, I got a grant to find better ways to study personalized, integrative, whole practice research. 
you cannot placebo meditate. There is no placebo plant-based diet, right? So we can't do the level one evidence-based medicine, double-blind placebo controlled trial. So there will never be level one evidence for diet and Parkinson's because that's not how that works. And so we need to find better ways to do that. And so while I was doing my MPH, PhD, nutritional epidemiology work, I was studying how to do studies and what makes a good outcome measure and how do you design a study. The study of epidemiology is basically learning how to ask the right questions, right, to get the answers that you want. And so realizing coming in as an outsider, now my five-year gig was to infiltrate the Parkinson's community, learn how to become a competent, independent researcher, learn nutritional epidemiology, and do this double-blind placebo-controlled trial on intranasal glutathione. And so while I was doing all of that, I realized as an outsider, I had some unique perspective, right? We were 200 years into Parkinson's disease, and all anybody was asking for was a way to slow Parkinson's progression. And in statistics, like day one, you learn continuous outcome measures are much more sensitive than categorical ones. And categorical ones are more sensitive than binary ones. And so for the last 60 years in Parkinson's disease, we've only used categorical outcome measures. So if it takes 20% to see a change from one to two, right? You're missing everything that has a 15% improvement. And so the scales that we have been using have been hindering our ability to correctly identify signals. And so once I started realizing our scales stunk, they weren't answering the questions that we wanted answered. They were mostly focused on motor stuff, but two thirds of people's symptoms are non-motor. You know, I started kind of maybe cockily I'm like, well, if you guys can't figure it out, I'll just make my own, you know? And so based on my clinical experience and what I was learning in school, I just kind of built a universally acceptable scale where we could all agree zero means success. If you can go through these 35 symptoms of Parkinson's disease and slide the slider tab to zero and say, I don't have any of these symptoms this past week, we're all happy. And so I built the scale, long story short, it is working much, much, much better than I could have ever anticipated. It is remotely acquired, quantified snapshots of your personalized picture of Parkinson's disease symptom severity and tracks reversal and stabilization and progression over time. And so what is unique about the research that I've done is for the first time, we actually are using a tool that is quite sensitive to lifestyle, to change. I mean, the way the UPDRS is a step scale that mm-hmm. has been used, and we are picking up things that the UPDRS cannot or has not been able to. So it's exciting. The scale really makes it so that we're getting better answers to the questions. And the scale does another thing that's very different. And you could probably speak to this way better than me, but I don't know of many standardized rating scales or standardized tracking measures where the patient can log into an app now and, as you mentioned, like slide their scales of how bad is this symptom today or or not. And the researcher gets that information. And now clinicians can also get that information and track that patient. That's unusual where it's the patient that's 
inputting the data that way. Yep. Yeah, no, I think it's where we're heading. And I think it's one of the reasons we've been getting it wrong so long. I mean, Parkinson's is a highly fluctuating disorder. The five to 15 minutes your doc is spending with you, the objective assessment of Parkinson's disease is so inaccurate. That window that the doctor observes is so not a snapshot of the person's opinion of what the burden of their disease is. It's a researcher clinician bias. Like every clinician and researcher has this internal bias that objective is somehow more legitimate because I saw it. I know it's true, right? But the reality is just asking the patient, how are you? Looks like it's actually much more accurate than what that physician sees in that five minute window. Yeah, it's called remote patient monitoring or subjective symptom tracking. But I do think that with continuous glucose monitors and some of these evolving apps, the Parkinson's symptom tracking app is what this one is called. I think that we are entering a new stage of medicine where patients are taking control. Parkinson's has historically been defined by physicians. Like we are witnessing the redefinition of Parkinson's by what the patient experiences. This isn't a disease of tremor. It is a disease of bowel problems and fatigue and disrupted sleep and anxiety and apathy. And like these symptoms that have been ignored for so long because doctors can't see them, they've been brushed under the rug. So I think we're entering a whole new genre of really, really, really good comprehensive care that includes the symptoms that have been falling through the cracks. One of the things I really liked about that too is that it really meets it meets the patients where they are in a way that I think that in medicine, we maybe think we're meeting patients where they are, but in the world of Parkinson's, for instance, they come in on, on their medication because they want to perform well in their visit. We're just seeing them in one state. And if a couple of days ago, I had a patient in that he went off during the visit. So I got this privilege to see, oh, this is what it's like when you're off. Because when he's on, he's pretty darn good. But when he's off, yeah. Yeah, no, I think um, patient-centered medicine is mm-hmm. where we're headed. And this is where patient-centered medicine is becoming patient-centered research. Yes, and that's exciting because you see the Parkinson's community really get behind work like yours and the funding of it, like the whole Michael J. Fox Foundation and that being a patient-led initiative in and of itself is a fascinating thing in the Parkinson's world. I'd love to see that happen and more in other areas like MS, as you mentioned, would be amazing. Now, the, the Parkinson's community is absolutely one of the best parts of having Parkinson's by far. I mean, it is an amazing, amazing, amazing group of people. Yeah, yeah. I have to say too, the people that get involved in working with Parkinson's patients tend to be really amazing humans too. I won't fangirl too much more about you right now, but that's definitely how I feel. So you developed this pro-PD scale that is allowing patients and clinicians and researchers to really track more based on what is the subjective experience of the patient and outcomes that are really meaningful for the patient population versus how they score on a UPDRS yearly assessment or something like that. Now you pair that though, you didn't just do that. (laughs) You've done so much more. So you take that and then tell us what you did with that. Right. So once I had a way to ask patients, how are you in a way that was quantifiable and I could pull out certain symptoms and and be able to see, oh, not only is Sally scoring higher than average, 
it is constipation, sleep, and fatigue that is really contributing to that excessive burden. So that was kind of how the scale turned out. And so once we had a scale, we developed a study called Modifiable Variables in Parkinsonism, the MVP study. You can Google it. We're still looking for study participants. Please consider joining. The more people who join, the more accurate and sensitive the data becomes. But basically, what we do is twice a year, we send out a survey. It takes about 60 to 90 minutes. You can start and come back later. Um, But it takes about 60 to 90 minutes twice a year of you just answering a bunch of questions. Who are you? How are you? What do you do? And then we write code and we can find the people who are doing the worst and doing the best. And we can tell you what the people doing unusually well, the positive deviants, are doing. Mm. We are studying the outliers. Instead of using the diversity, the heterogeneity of this disease, we're using the diversity to our advantage. We are looking for the people who are doing the best, studying what they're doing, and then trying to teach everybody to do that too. And what are you finding when you do that? The single biggest predictors of Parkinson's progression are loneliness and poverty. Yeah. Not surprising given research in other fields, but heartbreaking and nonetheless, I think it's going to be a lot easier to tackle loneliness than poverty. And so I think maybe let's just start there, but I don't think either one of those should be ignored. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, is poverty modifiable? Right. Too bad that I have to ask that question. Of course it is. But in the world we live in, it's almost not. Right. And so I think we as scientists have to have a conversation about things like that. And it's not insignificant to the people living with this disease. It's a very, 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 very relevant variable. So even though those are harder to modify, friends and financial health and stability are really important. Daily exercise, absolutely. We can see people who exercise seven days a week doing better than people who do six days a week. Six is better than five. Five is better than four. The first two days a week of exercise do not seem to be associated with slower progression. You need to exercise at least three days a week for us to see slower disease progression. In terms of food, we are about to submit for publication the 10-year update. Amazing. dietary observation stuff and the foods that have very, very consistently at every step of the last 10 years been associated with better outcomes over time. Fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, nuts and seeds, coconut oil, olive oil, and red wine. Second tier is beans and non-fried fish. So that's the core. And then on the bad side, very consistently every step of the last 10 years, Ice cream, butter, beef, chicken, fried foods, soda. And then second tier are all the other dairies, yogurt, cheese, milk, cream. (laughs) So beef, chicken, pork, dairy, soda, fried foods. So you see a couple trend lines there that it's fascinating to see that you're arriving at some of the same stuff that we're seeing for Alzheimer's disease or we're seeing for even like heart disease and other outcomes is that there does seem to be this trend towards Mediterranean style diet or high plant-based diet that makes a big change or makes a difference in terms of how you progress through a neurodegenerative condition like Parkinson's. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. And asking the questions a completely different way from a completely different 
of using a completely different outcome measure in different countries, we are getting the same answers. So yeah, that should tell you something. And I'll just say you use the Mediterranean diet, which is a term I'd really like us to start getting away from a little bit, because when every single person thinks one thing, when they think Mediterranean diet, like they have their own preconceived notions. If you asked 20 people to really sit down and describe the composition of a Mediterranean diet, you would probably get 20 different definitions. Some people think it's bread. Some people think it's not. Some people think it includes dairy. Some people not. And so how we measure Mediterranean diet on the researcher scale is this 10-point scale. And we just published a paper looking at Mediterranean versus mind diet in Parkinson's progression. And the mind diet was twice as good as Mediterranean at being associated with slower disease outcomes. And so while it is true that fruits and veggies and nuts and seeds and wine are on a Mediterranean diet, the Mediterranean diet includes a lot of stuff that doesn't, includes cheese and things that are harming, that seem to be associated with worse progression. So the mind diet is distinct in that it's no dairy. It's not just veggies, it's green leafy veggies, and it's not just fruit, it's berries. And so the other thing I'll say is the mind diet includes chicken. And according to our research, that question, like the points you get for eating poultry, hurt the scale. If the mind <laughs> diet had not included poultry, the benefit of the mind diet would have been even greater. And so I am still telling people mind diet sans chicken is probably <laughs> like if you're going to go for cookbooks that you can readily buy on Amazon, I wouldn't go Mediterranean anymore. I would go mind. You would go would mind. Yeah. 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 And I think there's some data around even prevention of onset now, looking at Mediterranean and mind diet, and that the mind diet had something like a 17 year delay in onset in, I think the subclass was women. Yeah. Um, women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And which I also find really fascinating why that subclass. But another way that that's really helpful is that it does give people a bit more detail. And when we're talking about diet, Patients often get sent home with instructions like you need to exercise and eat well, and they need someone to coach them through that. And they need data like what you're developing that really gets to the root of saying, look, if you do, I love being able to say to people that seven days is better than six days in terms of exercise and six days is better than five. So we're just going to keep working on getting you to the seven days. And then we can talk about intensity and how intensity changes things. So some of the stuff that's based in your research and other people's research is really helpful as a clinician because we can say, look, this is what the evidence shows and we can recreate this and there's detail in there. And life is in the details for sure. And if you're managing Parkinson's disease, you want to know what to do and you feel the clock ticking. And so you want to do it now. You've created like a robust set of data. I can't believe it's 10 years. Me either. I've been telling people seven or eight. And then I was writing up this paper and I pulled to see when the first person registered. And it was May 2013 or March. It was March 2013 was the first person to enroll in the MVP. Oh, that's amazing. We're at, we're at the 10 year anniversary right around this time. I was asleep at the wheel. I was two years behind. We, we <laughs> I didn't celebrate the 10-year anniversary because I thought we had two and a half years to go or something like that. It's a sign of someone who's really, you're in the, you're in the weeds. <laughs> so there was a couple other things I wanted, I thought that patients would find really interesting. So we did do a podcast, or we being me, did a podcast 
on the social determinants of health because in part inspired by your research in this finding of loneliness and looking at like how we assess loneliness and what's best practices around addressing loneliness. And I'm curious if in your research you've had any insights into that in this population. Yeah, we are presenting a poster at the World Parkinson Congress in Barcelona in the first week in July showing that there is a three-question, it's called the UCLA three-item loneliness scale. I can tell you the three questions, but what we are presenting is that the way you answer those three questions, I think made up something of like 40% of people's overall quality of life. Like it was mind-blowing how you answer these questions was linked to your overall quality of life. And all the scales on grit and resilience and isolation and friendships and whatever these things are that we looked at, this UCLA 3 ended up being the best bang for your buck in terms of a quick way for clinicians to assess loneliness in their patients. And so patients have three response options, hardly ever, some of the time, or often. And so the three questions are, how often do you feel you lack companionship? How often do you feel left out? And how often do you feel isolated from others? So it's similar to the PHQ-9 in that they're quantifying how often they experience this, or they say that they agree with that question or that experience. And in that was the most sensitive for being able to determine whether or not someone is experiencing loneliness. Yeah. So we looked at a whole bunch of different scales administered to people. And we looked at of all the scales that we were using, which ones most heavily correlated with somebody's overall quality of life and which ones correlated best with people's overall Parkinson's disease symptoms. And all of these social determinants of health measures, I want to say it was over three quarters or 80% of Parkinson's quality of life was explained by the social stuff. In terms of the overall Parkinson's disease syndrome, that was more like 30%. I mean, there are a lot of other things contributing to constipation and sleep and blah, blah, blah. um, So the social determinants didn't contribute, I think it was like 30 some percent to PD severity. But in terms of Parkinson's quality of life, it was the whole pie. It came down to questions about social health. Friends are part of the medicine. There's something called social prescribing right? Physicians actually prescribe workout classes. There's research that says your impact is greater if you do the exact same exercises with a group as opposed to alone in your living room. There's something about peer pressure and the social dynamic engagement, rock steady boxing, table tennis, pickleball. I mean, it's not just the exercise, it's social plus exercise that potentiates each other. It makes sense when you think of like us as social beings that We would just do better in general when we're doing things in a community setting, period. Like we're not great solo creatures. So one of the things that's a strength in the PD community is that they do tend to set up these organizations across the world where there is these opportunities where they can exercise together in a group. In Victoria, we have one. I've seen them recreated in other places where they can come and do, like, as you mentioned, the rock steady boxing, or they can do the PWR program together in a huge group and then have a chance to socialize as well at the same time. And so they get this like double, triple, maybe it's quadruple benefit. The multiplying effect there, I think is pretty big. And, you know, the way I like to think about, take the field of addiction, researchers and clinicians have largely failed addicts 
right? Like your doctor cannot solve your addiction problem. They have really very little, if anything, to offer you. And what has happened is the community of people suffering from addiction have found a way to come together and form clubs and associations that have been more successful than anything the doctors have had to offer, right? And and it's kind of like that same sort of concept. Like if you guys can't figure it out, we'll do it ourselves, right? And I'm watching what happened with Alcoholics Anonymous happen with the Parkinson's community, where after a couple hundred years of sitting around waiting for the researchers to come up with a pill or a procedure or some cure and it's not happening, they're like, you know what? The data on exercise is pretty good. Let's all exercise together. The data, you know, and we're watching rock steady boxing and pickleball and all these fabulous, you know, power, big and loud. I mean, the Parkinson's community is leading a revolution in patient motivated problem solving from within. And it's effective. Mm-hmm. They're getting somewhere. I can already see, and this is getting back to the app, like now that the Parkinson's symptom tracking app is available globally, we have people in 121 different countries, and it is so eye-opening to see how much more severe patients in different parts of the world are rating their symptoms. I mean, I'm seeing scores coming in from India that I haven't seen in any of my patients in years. Right. I like I forgot people can mark their symptoms that severe. I mean, I thought the scale only went up to a certain like, oh, no one really scores much higher than 2000. And like when you start getting places in underserved areas of the world scoring 2300, 2600, you realize how lucky we are. Like as much as we're complaining about our current symptoms and the current state of healthcare. Now that I'm seeing the scores that are coming in from the United States and the scores coming in from Canada and what's coming in from France and Gabon and South Africa and Peru, you know, you start realizing that the global diversity is incredible. And that's the whole area of study. I mean, you know, just looking at resources and strategies and I made a joke with you at the start of this, but I mean, I would like to start to look at which countries are getting the best outcomes with people with Parkinson's and let's figure out what systems they have in place. Can we learn from them? Yeah. And do you have a sense, and you may not be able to answer this yet, but do you have a sense of where there might be a bit of excellence happening in the world? No, I don't have those data yet. A couple of years ago, there is a Pacific Northwest meeting of Parkinson's docs that meets most years. And uh, a couple of years ago, I gave a talk. It was kind of funny, playful, And it was all preliminary data. It wasn't really cleaned, but the point of the topic was comparative effectiveness research. And this idea that we're not studying the red pill or the blue pill, but a system of care, the acupuncturist versus the movement disorder doc, right? Right. And so, you know, it doesn't really matter what happens in the visit. All we care about is how well the patient's doing on the back end. Right. And so there's more freedom. Like you can use therapeutic use of placebo instead of controlling for it. Like, you know, I joke that my office, I have an amazing front desk staff at our office and they're funny. Like by the time I Mm. go to meet most of my patients, my office has already made them laugh. They've already cracked a joke. They've already, how was your trip to Bolivia? Blah, blah, blah. Like they know them. It's personal. And I've joked that that's part of the medicine, right? Office staff priming the pump right? So this mm-hmm. care allows you to do all that stuff. And so a couple of years ago, I did a study where I gave a presentation on 
different clinics getting different outcomes at this Pacific Northwest meeting. And I compared all the Parkinson's clinics in British Columbia, Washington, and Oregon to one another. And University of British Columbia actually came out in first place. Our clinic came in second place. But I've been a little bitter and resentful about that for a couple of years. But I like that idea of let's start to learn from the people who are doing really, really well. Yeah. And I like the idea of it of there being a friendly competition around it because friendly competition is so is such a great way for people to not be intimidated to share information, but also to, you know, support excellence in each other. So I love that idea. Yeah. One other thing you mentioned there that I want to connect back to, if we can, like just connect back to the community as medicine. I really believe, and this is, this is what I believe in my own clinic too, is that the patient outcome for someone who's coming into any kind of facility, whether it's a hospital, whether it's a private clinic, depends on the health of that organization and how that organization creates a sense of belonging, commitment, you know, striving for excellence, but also a way in which we put patients at the center of care. And so the patient, when they walk in, they're walking into a community that's there for them. And they feel welcome and they feel like they belong. And I feel like that's part of the medicine that you can do. And you can do that as an individual clinician just by being really welcoming and, and meeting that person and, and having a good bedside manner. But I, I think part of this community as medicine piece can be applied even to how you structure a hospital, how you structure a clinic, or how you structure a Parkinson's research clinic or whatever. Like there's, there's I think there's a treatment effect there. Yeah. And even from patient to patient, that extends. I mean, when patients reach out to their neighbor with Parkinson's, not only are they getting their own medicine by that social connection, they're giving medicine to somebody else. Like it's such a neat contagion. Did you expect to have such a beautiful finding? Uh, I was familiar with other diseases that show that loneliness is associated with worse outcomes. So I suspected enough to include it in the original questionnaire 10 years ago. Like I Mm. didn't expect that lonely people would be worse. The things I didn't expect is how much worse, right? And I think it's also really important to say our data does not suggest that lonely people progress faster. They progress at the same rate. They are just 40 to 50% worse each step of the way. Interesting. So I think as a researcher, we really need to differentiate between that which is symptom relieving and that which is disease modifying. And it looks like loneliness is more associated with symptom relief, not necessarily disease modification. So as a clinician hearing that, I think if I have a patient who is answering my questions around loneliness in the positive, that they are experiencing the endorse that they are lonely, that there's a big opportunity for treatment there in the real time now to give them a social prescription and say, let's, let's start working on this straight up now. Yep. Like it's not, we want you to make friends because we want you to be better in 10 years. It is if you go out and join a club, start participating in start taking dance lessons, drawing classes, Spanish at the local community college, Zumba at the local gym. You start plugging in. You start being a part of something bigger than yourself. You start having someone expect you to show up and be needed by somebody. Within weeks, we can start to see change. Do we see, this is a curiosity that you may or may not be able to answer, but do we see changes in even 
use of medications in folks that go from lonely to less lonely? Or is that not really the domain that we end up seeing a change in? No, I don't think so. And I wouldn't go there because, I mean, remember, by the time you're talking about what meds do you need, I mean, the loss of dopamine neurons occurs 10 to 20 years after this disease starts. I mean, you're kind of stuck with a lot of the symptoms you're stuck with. Our goal really is to make it so it doesn't progress past here. In fact, you know, when people start playing pickleball and running marathons and aggressively exercising, they often need to boost their meds up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Lewski double black diamonds make more dopamine than people on bunny hills. If you're going to live a fast paced life with lots of people and activities and meetings and appointments and pickleball, you're going to need a little bit more medicine to keep up with that lifestyle. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing. I think you might be better off to take an extra pill a day and get more social connection, more physical activity, chop more vegetables than to be more stagnant and slightly less medicated. So the reason I asked that question is sometimes that's where we look for, I guess, like a marker of success. And what you're seeing is that, no, that's not the marker of success. The marker of success is like you're being more alive in your life. Your quality of life is going up. The success isn't getting the medication down a bit, which I think patients often are thinking that's part of what their goal is, right? Is to, is to get their medication down. But instead of, if it's more, No, your medication is about you getting joy in your life, about you getting out there and doing these things that then also improve your outcomes just overall in the now and maybe some of those things for exercise, for example, into the future, that the idea of it being a tool is useful. Yeah, I I think there's so much fear around the meds. And, you know, it's sometimes helpful for people to realize we are just talking about an amino acid supplement. I mean, this is not a big scary (laughs) medicine. We are putting back into the system something that's supposed to be there that you're missing, right? So probably more like a type 1 diabetic can't make enough insulin. Most humans can make enough insulin. If you have type 1 diabetes, you can't. So you need to give yourself exogenous insulin. Same thing with Parkinson's. Most people can make enough dopamine. You can't, so you need to give yourself exogenous dopamine. That simple. We don't judge a person giving themselves insulin whether or not they just took six or eight units, right? 100%. Yeah. You come to my house and ask for a glass of water and then ask for a second one. I don't think, I can't believe she was two glasses of water thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) What your body needs. Like if you feel better on two levodopa, take two levodopa. Like, yeah, some people drive a Prius, some people drive a Hummer. Like you need to figure out how much gas do you need to put in the tank to make things run. And then once you figure that out, let's try and stay there. And, Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say a measure of health is if you optimize your dose and you say, this is the dose of meds that makes me feel pretty stinking awesome, as good as I can get, and you can stay at that dose for a decade, I would call that success. That's huge success because we know that that person's progression has slowed right down. Right. Yeah. They're not needing yeah. more. Who cares if they need to put gas in the tank? I mean, the damage mm-hmm. that dopamine is done. We're not going to regrow new dopamine neurons. Mm-hmm. The best we can do is give the body the dopamine it needs on the defensive side while we work over here to stop future progression and invest heavily in the offensive side. Well, Laurie, I could talk to you all bloody day. And I know that you have a day to have into the future doing great things. I wanted to ask you one closing question 
which was what would be one thing that you would advise? Like if someone is early in their diagnosis, what's one thing that you would advise them to focus on at the very beginning? Well, in the online Parkinson school class, you know, parkinson-school.com, there's an orientation class where I spend one hour basically saying, please, please, please. Everyone who's been diagnosed with Parkinson's who thinks they may have Parkinson's, please just watch this orientation video. And my goal with that video is basically to make a very compelling case that this disorder, this syndrome is absolutely modifiable. I do not believe it is irreversible and progressive. I believe that you can do a million things over the next... I believe that somebody diagnosed at 50 years old can live to be 100 with their quality of life being good to excellent every step of the way. I truly think we already have the evidence to make that happen or just haven't been using it. And so that, in terms of some of the connection points that we want listeners to know about, you and I talked about there being three things. One of them was this online Parkinson's school. This is an amazing resource for patients and for their care providers just to hop in. And I would say for clinicians too. Like I think, I think actually clinicians would be a really big benefit for clinicians to be hopping onto PD school as well. And you said that that is at www.parkinsons-school.com. Is that right? Yeah, no S, parkinson-school.com. And we'll put that in the show notes. And then we also want to mention to people that you've got a PD camp, also been known as PD School, coming up in August. And the enrollment's open for that, right? Yeah, we just opened enrollment for that. We're about half full right now. Once a year, it's kind of the best of VIP program. It is one-stop shopping. We have movement disorder docs and physical therapists and best food and counselors and psychologists. And it's really my attempt at giving people four years of personalized, integrative, whole practice care. It's experiential, medical, educational, and a lot of movers and shakers and ambitious people who are determined to live really, really well, despite of Parkinson's. And it's community building. Everybody goes home with yeah. friendships. 100%. And then one other thing is that you do have the rating scale that we talked about that is available as an app on iOS and on Android, right? Parkinson's symptom tracking. Yep. Brilliant. Lori, thank you so much. So everything that we've talked about in terms of those last three points are going to be in the show notes and people will be able to reach out directly in all of those ways. Lori, thank you so much. I feel so blessed to get just, you know, an hour with you is going to make my entire summer better because <laughs> I'll be thinking about this all summer and I'm going to be at the Congress. I'm hoping that you'll be there as well this summer in Spain. I'm not. You won't I'm, be there? No, I'm going to go to Barcelona, the Movement Disorder Congress instead. Okay. Well, I'll be at the Congress. Great. And so if there's any hot tips and stuff, I will share them with you. I'm sure you probably will know most of those things in advance. No, and in fact, um, Josh Fairnick is going to kind of do the follow-up after the Congress highlights. If you wanted to join him for that, I would love to hear what you get out of the Congress too on our one of our online Parkinson's school classes. He was going to update us on what I'm missing. So, All right. Well, I will take notes and I will get back to you on that. That's exciting. All right. Well, you take care. Thank you so much for your time. 
and keep doing what you're doing. And hopefully we can get you back in short order and you can give us an update on what you meant to. Love it. And thank you for all that you're doing up there to spread the word and make it all happen in real time in Canada. Another big thank you to Dr. Lori Mishley. Now you folks see why she's so inspiring. She's inspiring to clinicians especially, but I know patients really resonate with her message. And she gets very full houses for her PD school every year. And having witnessed the PD school, I must say it is an inspiring and exciting week. I thought I would pick out what I think is the most important couple bites of information for Parkinson's patients and clinicians. Just a couple things that I want you to know about because they are the things that I repeat to patients over and over again, and she repeated them again over and over again, and it is evidence that's supported not only by Dr. Mishley's research, but other research as well. And one of those things is looking at the positive deviance. And we know those positive deviants are doing certain things, and we want everybody else who has PD to recreate what the positive deviants are in hopes that we get similar positive outcomes for those folks. Exercise was one of the things she highlighted, which is that there's a dose-dependent effect, meaning that if you exercise seven days, you have a better outcome in terms of slower progression than six days. Six days is better than five, five is better than four, and four is better than three. And notably, they don't see any effect on progression or they don't see the positive deviance doing two days or less of exercise. It's important because it tells you that the volume of what you do matters. In this case, the volume of exercise matters and there's a dose-dependent effect that starts at three days a week of exercise. In the world of diet, at 10 years now, Dr. Mishley can say that there are some leading indicators for people to progress slower in diet. And the positive things, the things that we want people to be eating more of, are things like fresh fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, coconut and olive oil, and red wine. I think we'll need to cover red wine as a different subject at some point, but I do not advise you to be going over three units a week. And then on the downsides of the foods that were correlated with, let's call them negative deviants, people who were doing worse, higher intakes of ice cream, I'm so sorry, butter, beef, chicken, fried foods, and soda. And in general, she said dairy seems to be associated with faster progression. Finally, she highlighted the MIND diet as the diet that she would specifically recommend people with Parkinson's start learning and adhering to. And that's based on some of her research, things that she's about to publish, and also other people's research as well. We are about to launch a two-part series on the MIND diet super fortuitous that Dr. Mishley brought that up. It was already planned and is going to be the next two episodes of The Well-Nurtured Brain. So buckle up. (laughs) We're going to get you eating in line with the mind diet and doing good things for your brain. So part one of that drops in two weeks. And I am so looking forward to sharing that with you. Looking forward to seeing you then and getting all your comments and your ideas for new shows, please send them our way at thewellnurturedbrain at gmail.com. So until then, don't forget, be kind to your mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, 
Remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening.